Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the BFI podcast. I'm Henry Barnes recording intro and links today down in the foyer of the BFI Stephen Street office, surrounded by people talking about film, talking about making film and staring suspiciously at a hairy man roving amongst them with a microphone who's making a podcast about film. So I might well go and hide behind one of the giant Oscar statues that stand guard outside the Ampass office. Anyway, the BFI podcast is normally a fortnightly roundup of going-ons across the British film industry, but this episode our focus has been narrowed and aimed disco laser-like at one spectacular event in the film calendar, BFI Flair, Europe's largest LGBTQ film festival. Flair just wrapped its 32nd year and the BFI's editorial team were on the ground amongst the stars and all sorts of other jumbled imagery. We were there anyway, and we're presenting here a roundup of the best of the fest. So coming up this episode, we have a cock and balls story as Rupert Everett goes into great detail, perhaps too much detail, about the physical transformation he underwent to play late-life Oscar Wilde in his directorial debut, The Happy Prince. Morris stars Hugh Grant and James Wilby, talking about how playing gay has changed since they filmed James Ivory's 1987 E.M. Forster adaptation. 120 BPM director Robin Campolo on dramatising the story of French AIDS activist group Act Up and LGBTQ plus kids as we present the highlights of our Facebook live discussion on LGBTQ plus parenting on screen. First up, Hugh Grant and James Wilby arrived at Flair for a special screening of Morris, James Ivory's take on Ian Forster's story about a gay love affair between two Oxford undergrads. The story takes place in the early 20th century, a time when homosexual relationships were still illegal, and sees Morris, played by Wilby, pursue Clive, Grant, only to see the pair's mutual attraction spoiled by Clive's fear of being persecuted. Here's Hugh and James talking to me just before the film's flare screening at BFI South Bank. Have you been right? Because Merchant Ivory just had a massive hit with Room of the View, we knew we'd get a sort of immediate platform. Um, Thatcher just introduced Clause 28, so there's a little bit of homophobia about. And did, it, did taking the role therefore feel like a political decision for you? Well, no, because, I mean, speaking for myself anyway, I was just um, delighted to be given a part in a, you know, classy feature film. 
that was the only decision. I, I, it never felt remotely political to me. As actors, you play, you'd play anything. You play Hitler. You wouldn't balk at it if, if that's if you felt the script was was uh, not gratuitous and you'd, you'd do anything. That's the that's the point. You, that's what we do. No, for me, the same as Hugh. I, I, it wasn't a political decision remotely. I mean, you, I couldn't believe I was uh, my luck. By continuing like this, you and I are risking everything we have. Our families, our names. I don't even doubt about name. It was quite odd shooting it because, you know, now people are so much more open about uh, um, gayness. We, you know, we were shooting with a quite a heavy-duty, all-male crew. I remember the scene where I kissed, where Rupert and I, Scudder and Morris, kiss at the end of the film, and the, and the clapper loader was in, decided that he, was, he would be in stitches of laughter, and, and they went, no, no, nothing to do with you guys, nothing to do with you guys, of course. I went, oh, yeah, really. And uh, you know, it clearly affected everyone subtly. Luckily, we had a, a French cameraman who brought a kind of Gallic sensibility to the whole proceedings. Mm. Just did a gay story, uh, this Jeremy Thorpe thing for the BBC, and uh, I, I know <laughs> there I was snogging Ben Wishaw, <laughs> A.K.A. Paddington to me, <laughs> and uh, no, there's no, there was no weirdness. No. But of course, you know, when we made Morris, uh, James Ivory and uh, Ishmael Ish Merchant. Who had been a couple, and were still a couple then, or maybe had they'd split I up? I think they'd split joined, up. Joined, split up, rejoined. It was, all, it was all quite complex their life, and then and then one of them was with what's his name, Robin Dick Dick Robbins, who wrote the music, who wrote the music, and always music. did. And so there were, you know, there were these uh, gay relationships around the film, but again, no one spoke about them, and uh, certainly James Ivory never spoke about being gay, nor did Ishmael, did they? No, but interestingly, they're, they're the normal writer for Merchant Ivory, Ruth Proud Jabvala, refused to write this, this story and, and never saw the film, Jim told me, which, and, and never said a word to him about it, which is almost like your brother or your closest friend or your mother. Why or did your she? she? I think it was because of the subject matter. She thought it was wrong to be doing this film. I, 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 I'm surmising. I don't know. But That's he was quite upset about, by it. Really? Because they're incredibly close. I mean, they all share, they all use, well, they're all dead apart from Jim, um, but they used to share this place in Claverack, which is north, upstate New York, and they'd all have a bedroom each, you know, so it was, it was they were a family. Well, the only happiness there is for me. There are other ways to be happy, you know. I think what Forster very cleverly did was write a love story. I mean, two love stories, one that doesn't work and one that does. And so he treated the whole, he treated it like that, presumably that was his own, sensibility that he he'd fallen in love and what's the difference really in in the scheme of things whether you fall in love with a, a member of your own sex or the opposite sex it's it's the same driving force that's going to push you to do things and i think that was that's what that's, that's what i love about the film um that people come out i've been i've seen it so many times well not for not for about 20 years but i did at the time a lot of times and people come out in tears because it's a very it's a very moving ending I, I hadn't realised that it was significant in terms of what it said about being gay or anything. Not as we made it, not really, but then in subsequent years, as it came out and afterwards, uh, you, so many messages from 
gay men or, oh, or, or men who had been in the closet now come out saying, oh, that film changed my life, it was really important to me. I had no idea we were making a film that was, might speak to people like that. Can I just ask finally about class and, and being gay? I was wondering if uh, there was an element of being at Oxbridge, and I have no idea if this is true, that, that meant that that kind of closed society made it slightly easier for those relationships to happen. Is there something about those rarefied environments, very closed environments, that allows that kind of love to happen, I guess? Yes, I'd say. I'd uh, say. Maybe. All, so, all those so boys nice coming from public school, <laughs> boarding school. Even know. more rampant there, I would say. Yeah. But again, it's like, it's, it, I, I remember speaking for myself, at the, where I was at school, there was a kind of undercurrent, it was an all-boys school, there was a kind of an undercurrent of, of that going on all the time, but it wasn't, no one said, oh, you're gay. It was kind of, all right, you know, older boys fancied younger boys. And it was but a given. Someone told me there was a famous graffiti at Eton in one of the loos that said, <laughs> if, you, if, if you don't fancy Jeremy Thomas, you must be gay. <laughs> That's pretty witty. What an ending. <laughs> what an ending. If you haven't seen Morris, you should. It's moving and beautifully acted, surprisingly modern in its take on the societal restrictions placed on gay romance in any age. A DVD of the 4K restoration of the film is available through Cohen Media Group. Next up, Robin Campolo, director of 120 BPM. Campolo's film dramatises the struggle of the French activist group ACT UP to raise awareness of the AIDS epidemic in early 90s Paris. The film, which won the Grand Prix at Cannes last year, was a special presentation at this year's Flair. Campolo sat down with the BFI's Lou Thomas to talk about his involvement with ACT UP as a younger man and the legacy of AIDS activism. I was uh, 20 years old and uh... Uh, you know, the first article was about the gay cancer. Mm. It was not AIDS at the time. And uh, I was, as a young gay guy, uh, I was really terrified that with uh, this kind of curse we were, because it was like something will happen. And uh, in the newspaper, people were saying that most uh, of the gay men were going to die of this epidemic, that if it was nothing, you know. I wanted people to feel what I felt 25 years ago when I joined the group, that I was not, you know, I was lost in this group. I was not, I didn't understand everything, every detail, as you say. I wanted the film to be like, you know, we have this expression in France, which we are talking about a river novel or a river film. That means, and uh, that means a film with a broad cast and a broad, a lot of details and you are kind of lost in the stream mm. and you go with the flow and you don't know where you're going and you realize that some actor, some character is very important and he can be a protagonist and it happens like this, you know, you are yeah, caught in the flow and of course that's why I wanted the image of uh, the river and the red river mm. at the end of the mm. film because it's very... Yes, you, you are, I wanted to be lost, I wanted my spectators to be lost in the floor as I was 20, 25 years ago and to show the complexity of what we were and where, what we were uh, coping with, you know, mm. that was very important for me to have all these details. Nous vivons cela comme une guerre, une guerre invisible aux yeux des autres. Pourtant nos amis meurent et nous ne voulons pas mourir. 
Nous nous battons contre ceux pour qui l'épidémie est une aubaine car elle tue depuis plus de 10 ans dans l'indifférence générale. People asked me if I wanted to uh, talk to the young generation and the young gay generation. I don't want to lecture them really. I just wanted to make also a genealogy and not only a ge uh, an historical genealogy but an emotional genealogy, a sensual genealogy of these struggles which were very important to me and I think there's, I realized when I worked with my young actors which were mainly mostly gay actors uh, that I, I didn't know that they didn't know. So that's was meaningful to do this film and I realized, I realized it when I was working on it. 120 BPM continues to screen at the BFI South Bank and is available now, later, anytime you like really, on the BFI player streaming service. Next to the last of the 19th century's great vagabonds and one of the 20th century's too few too. Oscar Wilde is played by Rupert Everett in The Happy Prince, Everett's take on the final few years of the poet and playwright's life. Written, directed by and starring Everett, The Happy Prince sees wild, bloated and sozzled, reflecting on his legacy. The film's a ten years in the making passion project from Everett, who came to the BFI South Bank to present a screening to the Flair audience. The on-stage interviewer was senior BFI programmer and, I've always wanted to say this, friend of the pod, Michael Blythe. Everett begins talking about the costume he wore to fully embody wild. The arse was this low-hanging soft thing made of kind of feathers and uh, he had a, amazing moobs, kind of low-hanging baboon tits. Uh, at first I had him with a gigantic cock um, <laughs> with balls made of um, dried peas but when I tried it out in the theater at first and I was wearing this very tight suit it was all wedged inside and in the theater I could see the front row of the audience just like and they were saying, my God, I never knew Rupert Everett was that well hung. And it kind of uh, took over from the play, so I had to have an operation and uh, cut the size of it down. But that's how it started. And then I wore a, a corset over the fat suit, and I had some amazing teeth made, which plump out the inside of your face. And then I was ready to go. I think uh, time has moved on slightly since the other wild films, because the first one was made in, I think, 1957. Uh, which was a very risky time to make a film about Wilde. The second one in the 1970s, which was still uh, not a safe time. So everyone was slightly more reverential uh, towards him. And then um, the latest one, which was also, I don't know, 1992, um, it, it felt a little bit too sanitized still for me. I, I feel the great thing about Wilde is uh, the humanity of him and uh, the, the, the human frailty, if you like. Um, he was a huge star who really uh, thought the whole world was revolving around him. And so, and, and, the, and the colossal snob, and all these things I find very attractive. <laughs> um, the decision to, to, um, to follow the final few years in his life, um, where did that kind of first come from? Was it always your intention that you wanted to... to portray him after he was released from prison? Um, well, mostly because the other films about Wilde always end when he goes into prison. And for me, uh, the, the really interesting part, the romantic uh, fin de siècle, the end of the 19th century melodrama and tragedy is Wilde in exile. And uh, for me, it's one, of the, it's one of the great images of the end of the 19th century. And do you think, because it's something about... Uh, time in Wilde's life that we know slightly less about perhaps, that it gives you more freedom as an actor to do something 
to do something different to give him a different kind of energy or life. Well, what are you saying? That it's not, it's quite accurately, I mean, it, it, most of it actually happened. I, I didn't make it up for the most part. Uh, I think, uh, no, the, he was, you know, along with Verlaine, uh, the last of the 19th century's great vagabonds. You know, he, he sat cashing drinks on the boulevard, toothless, smelling slightly of piss. And, uh, and that was the end of one of uh, the world's most famous people. And uh, I just think that's a, a fascinating story to tell. The great thing about history is that history is what you want it to be. Uh, I wanted Oscar to be that character. Um, uh, for me, he is a, a kind of lech, a drunk, um, marvelous sense of humor, incredible compassion on the one hand, an amazing snob on the other. All the kind of things that, that all of us have inside. Um, I think he is. Uh, I also think he's a kind of, for me, a kind of Christ figure. Uh, he's, a, as I said before, he's a man and God, uh, genius and idiot. And I find uh, that's the story I wanted to tell, really. The amazing thing about Oscar and why, for me also, he's like Christ, is that when he ended up after the second court case, they took him to the Cadogan Hotel, and he had about six hours before the... Um, uh, the police issued the warrant for his arrest, and he had six hours in which he could leave England. And uh, at that point, he would have uh, become an exile and uh, could have gone on living. And he decided to sacrifice himself. And I think he sacrificed himself because he weighed up very cleverly that he would not achieve any kind of immortality for his career if he ran away. Because, in fact, the fact of the matter was there were, there were plenty of other playwrights more famous than he was at the time in London. And uh, really, his, his, his durability as, a, as, a, as an icon is really about uh, him as well as his work, uh, I think. So um, he, 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 he made the decision to, to sacrifice himself. The Happy Prince is on general release from mid-June. And finally, to the highlights of a panel on LGBTQ plus parenting and its depictions on screen. This was chaired by the BFI's acting artistic director of festivals, Trisha Tuttle and attended by filmmakers Jason Barker and Jules Roskin. Jason, a former Flair programmer, was at the festival with a deal with the universe, his autobiographical account of his transgender journey and the long road he took with his... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Partner Tracy is becoming pregnant with their son. Jules's film, Paternal Rights, is also autobiographical, documenting the filmmaker's painful but cathartic conversations with his family over the after-effects of physical and sexual abuse in their lives. Here's Trisha starting off the conversation about LGBTQ plus parenting on screen. Can you guys both think back to the first representation that you remember seeing um, or an early one? I mean, sort of search, searching back and was it a positive one? Was it a negative one? Did it leave a lasting impression on you? I've got some funny ones because I've been thinking about this for a while and they're not actually LGBT but we might sort of stretch the queer definition to include them. But I was thinking about films that I saw that had an impact and made me think about sort of different parenting. And there's some films from the 80s when I would have been a sort of young teenager. And one was um, The World According to Garp and just the alternative, well, rape method of... But it, it, it was the, the idea of somebody having a baby in a different way. And, and it's interesting as well because she, Jenny, the main character, she sets up a... A refuge for abused women and transsexuals, it's called, which seems sort of another world. <laughs> um, but yeah, so then I was thinking about another film from the 80s, which was The Big Chill. And there's a character in there and she wants a baby and she's asking various men in the film and they're saying no for whatever reasons. And then it ends with her and the guy, Harold, Kevin Klein having sex so that she can have a baby. And I must have been watching, I think it was probably about 13. And I remember those, both those films really clearly. I remember that one, particularly The Big Chill. I remember watching it probably very wide-eyed at that, that possibility. And can I say another one from the yeah, 80s? Please. And it's the reverse, thinking about kind of queers with parents. There's one scene that really stays in my mind, which was from Torch Song Trilogy. Arnold, darling, what do you know from raising a child? What's to know? Whenever there's a problem, I simply imagine how you would solve it. And then I do the opposite. That's what you invited me here for? To insult me and spit on your father's grave? Oh, my God! Arnold, you live your life the way you want. I put my fist in my mouth. I don't say a word. But think about the boy. I mean, he sees you living like this. Don't you think it's bound to affect him? And do you remember that? And I haven't seen it for years, but it's where the mother says to... The main guy, she says something like, how dare you compare your relationship to me and your father? And it makes me sort of, gives me chills to think of it now. It's so powerful and so hideous. And so, and I remember watching it. And I remember watching it with my mum. And you know that thing when you're kind of watching something queer yeah. at home in the evening and you're sort of sinking down like with the cushions around here, but you keep peeping to see what their reaction's going to be. And I remember watching my mum and my mum was all kind of cat-lipped like this, watching it. And I thought, yeah, you agree with that mum. You know? <laughs> and I think she probably did at the time, but it was this kind of, you know, it's, it's really hard. How dare you compare your relationship to our, to mine and your father's was what it was. And I think that stuck with me in this kind of idea of, you know, you will never be... You, that's something that's not for you, if you like. I've been sitting over here racking my brain trying to think of something, which obviously says something in and of itself. I don't remember early impressions of actual queer or LGBT parents, but what I remember actually is a movie I had just rewatched, um, which was uh, Three Men and a Baby. Oh, hello. 
Do 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 do. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. Do 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 do. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. Do 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 do. Um, and that was this, again, this sort of alternative kind of family. And then the sequel to that is also an alternative when the mother comes back into the picture and they're all four of them living together. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, it's it's in a sort of it's a straight context, but there's there's a sort of alternative family that's sort of being represented. And similarly, um, the television show My Two Dads, which, you know, again, they were straight, but they were two men who were raising a kid together. Um, and those were really impacting. Um, but sadly, I, I think it's not until more recently where I can actually sort of look at a queer person on screen and, and see them as a parent um, and um, not see it as a horrifying representation. I think if you were growing up um, as an LGBT person in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a real shift in this period, as with all LGBTQ representation in general. But um, you have shows like Modern, well, Modern Family is much later, but Friends, you know, Friends gets a lot of stick now for the Carol and Susan character, but they were lesbian parents. And I wonder whether you guys were conscious of those or watching those or whether they struck a chord for you as viewers. I have watched Modern Family, um, and you know I think there are there are things that are funny about it, and there are things that are deeply problematic about it. For not just the the gay characters, but kind of for everyone in the way that comedy, um, that kind of mainstream comedy, usually um, requires people to be to to function within a stereotype of some kind, um, like the Gloria character and 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 the, both of the gay characters and um, so you know it's a little cringeworthy at times, um, but I I think also it's a it, I can I also see that it's it's important that um, there is some representation out there that's happening that's not pathologizing. My son's getting married today. <laughs> it's what this golf club needs. Shake it up a little. Go on, dear. How often do your fathers get married? So far, one, two. Why am I still seeing you? A question for you both. Are we in a baby, a gay baby boom? Maybe Jason, as, a, as an LGBT parent, can talk about this, but whether we're in having a, a sort of experience in gay baby boom, and if so, do we think there's enough representation out there for the kids who are being raised by LGBT parents, um, or is there any at all? There really isn't a lot, is there? I mean, we, when we used to, when I was a programmer here, we, we used to show sometimes films for kids, um, you know, we'd have, we had to scrabble around, didn't we? We would, you know, we'd sort of scour the, the planet for these shorts. There was the one, um, Dottie's Magic Pockets, which was a, there was a pilot and another episode made just as a kind of, it was made by a, a company in Canada just to try out what would happen if you had a sort of LGBT main character for a children's show. And that was lovely, you know, so, but we, we were able to show that and, yeah. and, you know, we had an audience of people and their kids coming to see that. Um, but there isn't anything mainstream and that's what's sad. I was thinking about those shows that you were talking about and I was thinking about that they're really, I, I've been racking my brains, there isn't a lot and certainly not a lot in mainstream films for LGBT parents. And I thought, well, maybe it's because they know that we don't go out anymore we're all at home you know we're a terrible audience don't try and market stuff to us you know we're all in we're all in bed by half past nine so I was thinking maybe that's why there's this kind of you know the the representation is on the box sets is on the series you know is on the tv 
because that's where we are. But then I was thinking, but what else do we watch? Us lot, as parents, queer parents, is we watch an awful lot of children's films at the cinema. <laughs> we watch a lot, you know. So looking for anything, you know, like things like The Greatest Showman, for instance. Now that wasn't queer so much, but that was something, it felt like it nearly was. It felt like a good thing to go and see. It felt like it had this potential and just looking for anything. And I think that's the, the market is family films family films that represent LGBT parenting. Run away, they say, no one will love you as you are, but I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there's a place for us, for we are glorious. I think that sometimes, and I think this is true, it's certainly as LGBT people, we sometimes don't realise the history that's happening in our lives. I mean, I was looking, thinking about my film and I was thinking oh 2003 what was happening in the world in 2003 well in 2003 it wasn't possible for same-sex couples to adopt or foster in this country it was being talked about a lot so there was a lot in the press about this kind of can same-sex couples look after children even you know which seems so but that was all there in 2003 when I started filming and I think we don't realise how quickly our history moves and how, you know, I, 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 for me, 15 years seems like a very recent time. But then I think, well, that's gone from there to now and a lot has changed. A lot of our history is lost as well. Things that are really interesting just kind of get go like a puff of smoke. Um, and afterwards, you wish that you'd had a camera. So I was filming a lot of things. And I was also, at the time, we, we were doing this thing where we were trying to use my eggs fertilized and then with my partner getting pregnant and that was our plan I thought yeah I'll film the process and I, I imagined it would make this sort of funny little short film that I would then I, I know I had this whole picture with it that it was gonna be this funny short film that I would show our future child and I'd say look at this thing that we've done I don't know and then of course it went on for 57 times <laughs> There's a moment in your film, Jason, when um, you relay a story of a friend saying to you, uh, uh, I, I don't know whether it was a, a heterosexual or an LGBT-identified friend, but they say, um, you're very selfish doing this. Are you, are you worried? Like, are, you're going to bring a child into a world where they're going to experience homophobia and hate. Um, presumably that would have been something that made a big impact on you and I remember when my partner and I started on our journey to have our kids we got we got very like tra LGBT parent phobic things coming from the gay community also from heterosexual friends it was really really tough to hear sometimes um, and I think you've just talked about it we've sort of lived through a decade probably you know two decades of this really shifting um, how much was that fear did you have that fear I think it's I think it's really interesting because yes I did and it is something that you really worry about you really worry about what what are we doing? What are we doing to a child? What, how are we going to... Because I think anybody who's thinking about having a child should be really worrying about what are we doing here? Why are we doing this? What, what are we bringing this child into the world for? And, you know, what do we hope to do? You know, how are we going to parent? And you have all these conversations. And I think with that, you've got this kind of external fear. It's funny, I think, as well, being an LGBT parent. I was thinking about it as well. One of the things that I think is an interesting sort of dichotomy that you've got this force that often from the queer community you're seen as the most boring heteronormative people who are like somehow you know oh look at those 
boring people going off and having children because they want to somehow get in on the mainstream and they want to have some sort of mainstream privilege. And then you've got like your families and everyone else who think you're doing this kind of like the most queer, like they're doing what? They're having a baby now. <laughs> and what, you know, it's like they just kind of don't get it. And, and then you've got this thing where I think as living it, as a, what I found was the most remarkable thing for me is that I, I didn't realise what a bubble I was in before having a child. An absolute bubble of LGBT that is burst suddenly when you've suddenly got this small person and you're going to local children's centres and playgroups and you're talking to neighbours and you're chatting to the next door neighbour who's got a kid of a similar age and suddenly you're in the park and you're meeting people and it absolutely breaks barriers and one of the things that I found is that after a while I just you know people would I got a lot of attention for being kind of you know hands-on dad you know which I of course loved but I did start saying well you know actually I gave birth to him and here's our story and I just realized that people aren't phased it was kind of people took it in their stride and they'd say oh that's really interesting but they no one was you know the sky didn't fall in I've got a question for Jules because your film I mean it's a very personal film um, it's very exploratory from a personal perspective but also viewing it as a as a parent I found um, it really provoking in, an, in a really good way um, it made me think a lot about parenting and I wonder about the process of was it two years that you filmed the film that's the first part of my question and then the second one is what did you you went into it to sort of understand your family and understand why some things had happened what did you learn about parenting from making the film um, so the film was a four-year process I mean we were filming for about two and a half years um, and I think I, I probably learned a lot of things. Um, I think the thing that maybe there are two things that are sort of most salient. Um, one is that there's a whole part that's not actually in the film where there's a lot of interviewing I do with my parents where I'm asking them about their childhood and, you know, just to sort of um, to, and to talk about the, the cultural moment in which they were emerging as young people and emerging as parents um, in the 60s in the U.S. and the early 70s and um, uh, trying to really sort of understand how they became who they are and what were the sort of forces that influenced them um, as, I think, a way to have understanding and compassion for who they became as parents. And... Um, and I think the other thing that I learned is that um, where I think the, the film becomes, even though the film is about my specific family and about specific things that happened in our family that may not, many other people may not have experienced, I think the part that makes it universal is that we all are wounded by our, fam our families in one way or another. Whether that's like a major trauma or it's totally banal. It could be like... Your mom didn't make you the grilled cheese sandwich and when you wanted it and for whatever reason, like that is a thing that is taking up a lot of space in your mind. And it's probably not really about the grilled cheese sandwich, but that's what you remember, this like deep injury. And then as an adult, you say something to your mom about it and she's like, what are you talking? Like she's not, you know, there's no memory there of what happened. And even that, that's a double injury, right? Because you're like, here's this thing I can't let go of as an adult and you don't even remember that it happened. 
all of that is to say, again, more sort of compassion for parents and also fear of becoming a parent because you, it's impossible to predict, I think, the things that will affect your um, child and send them to therapy later um, to come back to you and say, do you remember this thing or why didn't you do this thing? And I think um, I try to remember that sort of over and over again um, as I am injured by things my parents do or don't do for that matter, um, that they're, you know, they're their own autonomous humans and they have all of their struggles and flaws and we're all just doing the best that we can. A deal with the universe which had its world premiere at Flair has picked up a sales deal with Altitude. More information on paternal rights at www.paternalrights.com. And that's it for this episode. Thanks to all our contributors, particularly Trisha, Michael and all of the Flair team. More details on Flair can be found on the BFI's website and YouTube channel where we have loads more coverage from this year's festival and Flair's past. The BFI podcast is written, hosted, recorded and produced by me, Henry Barnes. You can contact me by emailing henry.barnes at bfi.org.uk or tweeting me. I'm at Henry H. Barnes. Cheers for listening. See you next time. And on and on goes the search for our definitive closing line. Could this be it?